Hi, this is Doug Schaefer. Just wanted to let you know that I and everyone here at Schaefer hope you're doing well. We're all in a weird place right now where there are a lot of questions and not a lot of answers. Here at the winery, things are unusual in that most employees are working from home and there aren't any visitors out front. It's really quiet, and I miss all the people who should be here. But on a positive note, the vineyards that surround the winery are doing great. We have bud break, meaning that new life is all around us. The beauty of these vines is a real comfort and holds out the promise that one of these days, all this will be behind us. In the meantime, one of the questions I've been wrestling with is, should we keep doing these podcasts? Is that an okay thing to do right now? As I've been thinking about it, I've seen those videos of musicians in Spain playing music on their balconies. I've seen fitness trainers coaching neighbors through exercises on rooftops, neighbors singing to each other in Italy. And I guess it feels like making these podcasts is something like that, something positive that we can all share and enjoy. So with that, here's a podcast we recorded a few weeks ago before all this craziness kicked in. I hope you enjoy it. Stay well. Hey everybody, it's Doug Schaefer again with The Taste. Thanks very much for checking out this new episode. I think we've got a good one. My guest is a musician who had some major hits. He's a composer, an artist, a director, and now most recently a vintner. His brand, 50 by 50, is one of Napa's newest wineries. We have a lot to cover today, so let's get started. Hey everybody, welcome back. It's Doug Schaefer, another episode of The Taste. We've got a special guest today, Gerald Casali. Gerald, welcome. Thank you. And uh, Gerald, we just met today, but uh, I've known of you (laughs) for a long, long time because uh, you're best known as a musician. Uh, Gerald was a bass player for the band Devo. And And founder. And founder. And songwriter. And songwriter. And music producer, and one point of wine educator, and now a Napa Valley vintner. So, yeah. we've got a lot to talk about today. Yeah. But I got to tell you, years ago, how did I f- discover Devo? Okay, I was teaching junior high school in Tucson, Arizona. Oh wow, 1979, 80, 81. I'm teach. I'm 23. I'm country rock, Eagles, <laughs> you know, yeah. all that Stones, <laughs> and um, my kids who were 13 and 14, my students. Well, you started. I didn't have kids. All of a sudden, I'm walking through the quad one day, and some guy's got a you know boombox. Remember what boomboxes were? And this and this 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 sound is coming out of this thing. I said, "What is that?" that? And they're like, "Hey, Mr. Shaver, this is really cool. It's Devo." And I was like, "So that was that was the beginning for Devo yeah, for me, right. Tucson, Arizona." So thank you. Well, that um, was a great period in history. It really was. Oh, it was nuts. Well, there was such an explosion of creativity right then, and so many great bands. Very diverse sounds. All everybody was unique, and uh, it, it just seemed like every three months there was a new sound and a new, you know, a new direction. Well, you, and you guys were totally unique. I don't think you know. And what you know, we're, I want to start in the beginning, but right. before we do that, give give me a and give us because a lot of folks might not know Devo. What were you guys doing? What was the music? Well, I mean, how would you would can you categorize what you guys were doing? <laughs> well, that's why we called it Devo. That you know it. You couldn't characterize it because what we were doing was kind of a almost conceptual. You know, it was experimental and conceptual. Started in the mid '70s in Ohio. I met Mark Mothersbaugh at Kent State University because I was a student there. Right, and he was coming from Akron to take art classes, and I was a full time student. 
And I kept seeing his work, and he kept seeing mine, and we go, we have to meet. Huh. You know, we have to check it out. Then we bo- both found out we played music. And I didn't like the music he played, and he didn't like the music <laughs> I played. So we agreed that we'd uh, have the same approach to music as we did to art, which was if it looked like something else, we'd stop doing it. So if it sounded like something oh, else, we'd okay. stop doing it. So we started with a tabla rosa and agreed that we were going to strip everything down to some elemental, you know, back to the primal state of things Got and it. start from there. And I had this whole philosophy at the time about de-evolution. De-evolution, which yeah. is the, the source of the name, right? Right. That's what got shortened to diva. Uh-huh. Yeah. I was trying to do de-evolution art is what I was trying to do. Strip it all down. So we did it with music, and we started experimenting, and we hit something we both liked together. Huh. And that became the Devo sound that we created. And it was, you know, there was substance to it. It wasn't just style. Right. It was ideas. Right. And he he had a mini Moog, right? And okay. I, I was obsessed with drum and bass stuff. Yeah. And we found that kind of primal driving it's, rhythm. Yeah. It is. It's great. I mean, if I'm ever having a, a slow morning, yeah. I need something in the car oh, to man. get me going. Yeah. Boom. Sure. Play Devo. Yep. So going all the way back, born and raised in... Ohio. Ohio. Yeah. Akron. Yeah. What was that like? Um, 50s, sad. 60s, right? <laughs> sad. Oh. <laughs> you know, it was... Uh, it was the end of the Industrial Revolution, and all the tire companies were moving out of huh. town, so the economy was tanking. You know, it was blue-collar. It was, uh, you know, a lot of religious fundamentalism, mm-hmm. very anti-intellectual, you know, not not conducive to artists and creative people. But, you know, that kind of always works in its own way. Like, when you look at artists and musicians, they always came from these kind of pressure cooker downtrodden areas that made them stronger. I'm with you. So Akron back then, uh, slow place, slow economy. Yeah. Um, how did you get into art? That was was that something from a kid? You were yeah. Just you just loved it. Yeah. You know, I don't think people really choose on that level. I think you're driven by some imperative to do what you do. Okay. And. Some people are lucky enough to find out what that is sooner than later. And I was always drawing. I was always writing, always thinking. Huh. And it just was it was in me. And yeah. It had to come out, as John Lee Hooker said. Gentlemen, <laughs> it's got to come out. So so school and high school was more art and drawing, was it, was it or sports activities, stuff? Anything? Well, you know, I was, yeah, you know, I, I think... Part of me always tried in the beginning to fit in. You know, I kind of gravitated towards the the preppy kids that were headed for college, and uh, and I was accepted because I could, I had a sense of humor and I could draw. So like the jocks didn't want to beat me up because they'd ask me to draw <laughs> pinup girls, right? So I'd draw them pinup girls, and they, he's okay, right? right? And then the greaser guys, I'd draw hot rods for them. So they didn't they didn't beat me up at football games or anything, and I was coordinated. I was, uh, you know, I played uh, baseball. Yeah, I played football until the tenth grade. Then kids got too big, they and I was getting big. creamed. And I, I was a receiver, and I re- I received all right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's um, 
that's challenging because it's it, when I think about that because the the peer pressure, especially you know, I don't know about you, but I can remember, I can remember junior high and high school like yesterday. Sure, oh, and yeah. all this the, the just the stuff. I know it's it's probably minuscule now. It's no big deal. It's junior high, or high school, but in your in your life experiences, those were for me. Those were just the that shaped my life. Well, and you know what? You know, in a way, it never ends. It, it, it's, I mean, well, it's like, different levels. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, it's all high school uh, in terms of interaction, yeah. social order, uh, the uh, duplicity, um, you know, sabotage, whatever. We it just gets from a small micro level in a little town to the whole nation, and it's the same thing going on. And the only the only reason I think. I survive and make it is I just, as I've gotten old, older, I've gotten more confidence in sure. because of life experience. Yeah. Because, But back then, you don't have any confidence or no. life experience. So That's it's right. like, this is... Everything's earth- devastating. Yeah, it's, everything's <laughs> devastating. Yeah. You, know, you know, she didn't, you know, she didn't pass me a note back. Right. You know, it's the end of the world. Um, so, I, yeah, I lucked out because uh, I had two high school teachers that uh, actually, you know, helped me and directed me to get a scholarship to be able to go to college. Otherwise, I could have never gone. Okay. So, um, and uh, brothers, sisters? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, came from a Catholic family, so <laughs> uh, they didn't believe in birth control, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there was uh, How many? five children. Five and There would have been seven. My mom had a set of twins, though. They didn't survive. Mm. But there were five, Let's and see. I was the oldest. So oh. I really took the brunt of... All the authoritarianism and all the responsibility. I was the babysitter de facto all the time. So big responsibility early on. Plus, you get the heavy because I've got kids, and my oldest is like, you know, the youngest gets away with murder. That's you know, true. Yeah. So that's true. I, I don't know if it's just the parent gets more experience or just the parent gets kind of tired. Both. They get beat <laughs> up beat and they up. decide to leave the kid alone, which really works out. Yeah. They become well adjusted. How about your folks? What what were they doing? Uh, you know, they were, you know, my mom was just, uh, well, a housewife that, you know, worked all day long because she had all these children, right? Yeah. And so yeah. she had to cook and take care of the kids and the house. And, and my dad worked all day. He was a uh, he was a technician. He, he made molds for the aerospace industry. So they huh. had, you know, tolerances of thousands of an inch, you know, for these parts for planes and rockets and stuff. And that's back before computers and oh, yeah. calculators. So everything oh, had to be done with oh, a slide rule, and you it, know, just it think was about that. manual cutting of blocks of steel. Wow! There was no CAD cams or anything. Think about that. Yeah, I know. And that wasn't that long ago. No, this yeah. was the fifties. Yeah. Okay. But it got us to the moon. It got us to the and moon. Now they can't even get back there. I know. <laughs> No, I remember because my dad flew bombers in uh, World War II, and years ago, once a year, they'd bring, they'd bring these B-24s into Napa, and he took us all up, right. a bunch of his kids and some grandkids. It's about right. eight years ago. And we flew the valley at sunset. It was beautiful. But this plane, it was, he called it. He said they call it a freight train, a flying fr- a freight car in the air. I mean, it's, it's rackety. It's frightening how crude it is, right? Crude. I know. I mean, just rickety, rackety. I'm thinking, God, these guys were flying these things. I know. Uh, it's frightening. It's like when you see the Apollo capsules that went into space. Yeah, the original ones oh are tiny. Oh, my God. <laughs> you had to be a suicide pilot. Yeah. Well, these guys were those test pilots. Yeah. Um, so growing up in Akron, how about, you know, you're now into wine. Wine yeah. at home in Akron? You know what happened was uh, 
<clears throat> you can imagine what our diet was like uh, growing up in Akron. It was meat and potatoes. All the all the vegetables were canned. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like the worst, really. I mean, you know, the big the big Friday night dinner, if you were lucky, was an overcooked rump roast that had been in a <laughs> pot all day long. You know, and and so. When I did taste wine, it was horrible. It was like Mogan David level wine, Got it. right? Night Train, Mogan David. Same thing with cheese. I couldn't understand. You know, <laughs> you'd see these magazines with people about wine and cheese, and I thought, this is horrible stuff, right? And it wasn't until I went to the university and met out-of-state students who had a different life experience. I made some friends with New Yorkers, right. and they started turning me on to real wine, right? Well, I'm with you. And so yeah. cheese, you know. And, and the cheese. And cheese, well, we used to have just the American cheese. I grew up in Chicago. Velveeta. Yeah, Velveeta. Yeah, no. Velveeta. Yeah, that was all I knew about. Does anybody know what Velveeta is anymore? No. Luckily. <laughs> you don't want to know. Well, I just started to think about trying to pair one of my wines with Velveeta. <laughs> oh, should, man. Maybe we should do that. We oh, should give that man. a try. Come on, we can try that. Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> I had the same experience in Chicago with seafood. Okay. And fish. And for as I got older and married and dating a gal and, you know, go out to dinner and, you know, it's like, no, I don't eat fish. Right. I don't eat fish. Because why not? Right. I said, because it's horrible. Yeah. You know, this tuna in a can, it sure. just smells. And, that's when, and so it took me to my, you know, mid-20s, 30s to realize, hey, fresh fish is really good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, same thing happened to me. I mean, it's so sad how people get turned off to whole categories of life experiences because the first experience is so bad. Yeah. You know, and that could happen with food, it happened with wine. So then the big, the big uh, revelation came when we signed our deal with Warner Brothers Records in 1977. Okay. And we flew out to L.A. because at that time you had to be near the record company yeah. once you signed a deal. It, it required physical proximity. You had to be there. And we landed in the middle of the California food and wine revolution. This is when all these great experimental chefs before they became moguls like Alice Waters, Michael McCarty, Jeremiah Tower. All the chefs. Uh, yeah, Bruce Martyr, uh, Wolfgang Puck. Restaurants were opening up every three months, and and these guys were the same age as me, and they were into the new wave music, and I was getting turned on to California wine and food by them in their restaurants. And it was just mind-blowing. Everything well, changed. Well, okay, I'm going to circle back because I want to come yeah. back. To, so, because I was curious about something, because I've, I've done a little research on your on your life. So you were, you were art and design. Was Did music kick in as a kid? Were you playing an instrument as a kid I or in high self-taught. school? I was self-taught. Self-taught? Yeah, I got an acoustic guitar when I was like 16. Okay. And started listening, you know, on my vinyl records, on yeah. my record player, and picking out... Bass lines and uh, guitar lines. Okay, well, because I wondered. I didn't know how that happened. And then I bought a book. I think, you know, you used to be able to buy songbooks that came with records, and it was Bob Dylan's, mm-hmm. another side of Bob Dylan, I think, it was, when he was acoustic, folky, and I loved him, and I got the book and right. put all the finger patterns in front of me and did it. Good for you. God, how cool is that? <laughs> so you're pl- so you're so you get a because c- a couple of great teachers in high school they yeah. turned you on, got a scholarship, went to Kent State. Yes, Kent State's where exactly exactly in Ohio? What city? It is, is it? in 
the same? town of Kent. Town of Kent. And at that time, there were only about fifteen thousand students there. Okay. It's like forty-five today, forty-five thousand students, and it was an interesting juncture because people think, oh, it's the Midwest. Oh, it's sleepy. It's right. out of it. It actually, we are not the Midwest. In northeastern Ohio, there was a there was a conduit from Berkeley to Chicago to Kent to New York. Got it. So when Mark Rudd started SDS at Columbia, he came the next year to Kent and started a chapter. Students for a Democratic Society. Yeah. I remember that. And, you know, this was the middle of protesting the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Um, all these things were going on. Uh, and that's how Kent became, just by accident, you know, a footnote in history. Because well, yeah, I was, you know, you were there. I was there. And uh, May May nineteen May fourth May fourth nineteen seventy and what it was was what Nixon what had happened? expanded the war from Vietnam into Cambodia without an act of Congress right he just did it mm-hmm. and back then you know people were pretty well apprised of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and they the these protests were all about what Nixon did that was attacking the Constitution and the rule of law. <laughs> And of course, that time there was student outrage already because of the Vietnam War. So that protest on the Monday, May Fourth, was about Cambodia and Nixon. Right. And there were protests all over America that day mm-hmm. uh, for the same reason. But what we didn't realize is that the governor had made a deal with the National Guard to come in the night before and lay in wait for this protest. Oh no. So before noon because it was always announced, you know, the yeah. students are going to they're going to gather at noon, they're going to protest. Right. Before noon, the universe the governor uh the yeah, the governor of the state announces martial law on campus, which means your first amendment rights are suspended. So <laughs> the national guard surrounds us and tells us to disperse, and of course the students are Giving them the finger and right. hell no, we're right. not going to go. Hell right. no, we're not going to go. And so they they advance on us with tear gas, masks, you know, right. uh, gas masks. They have M1 rifles with bayonets on them. And of course, bayonets. you're scared. Yeah, you're scared. Yeah. You know, yeah. so they start marching us over the hill from the commons to this parking lot where they're going to put us all in buses and send us to jail in Ravenna, Ohio. So at one point, they stop at the top of the crest of the hill and they do a formation and we're all like what are they doing now and we're staring at them and people are chanting and they get in a formation and the first row of them kneels down just like the civil war oh my god and next thing we know they shoot at us and it's live ammo it's live ammo and live ammo nobody knew this nobody knew this and there was that moment that it's like the scorsese film raging bull where everything Goes into slow motion and right. Jake Lamotta is getting hit in the face. Right. The sound changed, everything went away, and there was a freeze frame, and then, boom, back to live action. Right. Screaming, crying, students running, and there, there, you know, a few yards from me is Allison Krauss, who I knew, oh. laying there with a bullet through her back, and then somebody starts screaming about Jeffrey Miller, who I knew, oh, Gerald. and he's about. Twenty feet from me on the on the uh, like road that led to the practice football field, and he got shot in the head. And long story short, four students died that day. Nine were uh, wounded. One of them was paralyzed for life. And I was right in the middle of it. And it 
it changed me. It was I had a nervous breakdown, basically. Uh, well, why wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, we, nobody wants to see what real bullets do. No, I can't even imagine. It's hardcore. Uh, the exit wounds are grotesque. M one M one rifles with military bullets. I mean. It it was unbelievable. And of course... Well, you were there, and this made national, national news, you know, cover yeah. of Life magazine. And it's and still all. going I mean, it's, on 50 years later, you know, the, the commemorations, because there was never any justice. The parents uh, <laughs> did a class action suit and lost because, hey, guess what? It was martial law, folks, and you oh, students didn't have any rights. And of course, they were pariahs, you know, the... The way the news spun it was the students were at fault. The students threatened the National right, Guard. Right, Most yeah. people thought, oh, those kids deserved it, you know, those damn hippies. Yeah, those damn and, hippies. That was the, and, the rallying cry. Uh, oh. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, you're, uh, what are you, 20, 21? 20. 20. 20. <laughs> and... Uh, and I think I that did, changed I, me. After I, I, that, I started reading, you know, like analysis of uh, of the U.S. actions in the world and government and the history, the real history of the United did, States. You know, did you just leave? Did you finish? Did you just say, I'm well, I had get the to, hell out I of graduated here? in abstentia. That was my, I was a senior. Okay. And I had to get my diploma in the mail because they closed off the campus for the whole summer. Nobody was allowed on campus. Our our class didn't get to graduate. We didn't have a ceremony. <laughs> we I got my diploma in the mail. In the mail. Yeah, and uh, it was. I think that's what I was. No more Mister Nice Guy after that. I had a kind of a huh. a radical realization about that everything we're told is basically a fantasy and a lie. You know, like the old allegory of the cave, the Plato's. Plato's allegory of the cave where you react to shadows on the wall and you have no idea what's going on outside the mouth of the cave. <laughs> right, right. Oh, man. Yeah. How'd you get through it? You know, it took... I swear there was a two-year period where yeah. I was kind of adrift. Yeah. I was kind of adrift. But I stuck to my graduate school program. Okay. And went through that, but I met very interesting... Uh, uh, visiting professors and uh, poets from the Black Mountain College, like uh, um, Black Mountain School um, mm -hmm. outside of Chicago, um, Ed Dorn and others, and um, that really helped me. Really, these guys were smart, and they were cool. And I became very committed bohemian at that point. Got it. You and were I grad, started grad school, in grad, grad school at Kent State? Yeah. So you stayed there. Well, because... I had a scholarship to the University of Ann Arbor for grad school. Got it. But the governors of the four states, you know, like, uh, what was it, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and Indiana, uh, agreed that any student who had been part of a an official protest group or anti-war group, you'd be denied. You, you, they, you couldn't be an out-of-state student. So... Because they said outside agitators caused all this. So I was now an outside agitator if I went to Ann Arbor. So I lost my scholarship and had to come back home with my tail between my legs and go to graduate school at Kent. How can they do that? They did it. It wasn't just me. It was all out-of-state students who had been part of any anti-war group were uh, lost their scholarships. And you know, and now all these years later, you look at. <laughs> I'm just having a moment here because I was, 
I'm a little younger than you, so I'm in high school watching this stuff on the nightly news with my parents mm -hmm. and, uh, and not really understanding it and just the way, you know, anti-war. And as it turns out, many years later, it's like, yeah, they were right because it was a lousy war. I, I think we were it. on I the mean, right side know, of history. I mean, yeah, you were. But it took so long for people, you know, the official narrative to acknowledge that the Vietnam War was... A mistake it took right? so it took years, decades. Yeah, well, and fun. now it's like that is the prevailing right. uh, view. But look at the damage it's been done. Well, yeah, so oh. many lives. Yeah, but so. you and I understand that. Uh, you know, the only thing that's moral really is contributing, like living and contributing. You know, not being toxic, not being evil. Making wine <laughs> is a fundamentally moral. Pursuit. Yeah, around here we like to think. Sometimes I think about. Cause sometimes people ask me. It's like, you know, why do you do this? What's what's the goal? And you know, I think they're talking about. You know, oh, I'm trying to make a fruity, balanced, blah 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 <laughs> wine. You know, so, and they go, no, 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 no. Why? Why do you really just right. do this? Right. And um, it was a few years ago. I was kicking it around. It's like, um, I, I, it's it's a great way to bring joy to people's lives. Exactly, yeah. and it's it's this. It's spiritual in a way because mm -hmm. this combination of art and farming, and wine's a living thing that keeps changing. And you're, right. you're working with the earth, you're working with nature, and then you're creating this thing that does bring joy to people. You know, it's not just like a bottle of vodka. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> you know, and what's so cool is you and I could take the same ton of grapes, exact and same grapes, completely. And you different take it wines. to your place, and I yeah. take it to my place, and then we we meet up two years later yeah. and say, let's taste them. It's like yeah. different animals. Absolutely. And that's a, that's the magic of this stuff. Yeah, exactly. Cool. All right. So uh, this is this is really fun. So your grad school. So this is when this is when Devo. So how yeah. did how did it form? What, you know, I mean, how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you form a, a world renowned rock band? Well, I, kept, I had these ideas, and I kept trying in my own way to apply these, this philosophy of de-evolution, because that's what I decided was going on in the world, is what I saw, I labeled it as de-evolution. I didn't think people were getting smarter. I didn't see progress. I had grown up in the 50s and 60s with these visions of, you know, flying cars and domed cities and... Uh, you know, right. future that the was... The futuristic thing. We didn't have to work anymore. The Jetsons. And instead, what I yeah. was looking at was demise of social order, infrastructure. Uh, people seemed to be getting dumber. They were repeating sound bites and ad from, you know, and, and, and slogans from TV. And, uh, and I kept trying to, you know, apply this visual aesthetic to music. And I, I can say that I wasn't doing a great job of that because I was too... Mired in blues music. Okay. Uh, my stuff was too blues oriented. Got it. And so it was academic, and and that's what happened from meeting Mark. He was, he was of course he wasn't a in trendy. The, he guy. wasn't in the blues. No, he wasn't. And, <laughs> but what he did, he was imitating all these guys like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Okay. Or, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I all the <laughs> prog rock, right? Right. Where it was just how many notes can you play? How many time signatures can you change to? And I didn't like that. I thought it was. Indulgent. I thought it was masturbatory. Okay. So that's when we agreed, okay, you won't do what you're doing. I won't do what I'm doing. We're going to make something as original as our visual art. And if it sounds like other music, we stop right there. And so we really set a high bar for ourselves. 
And, you know, it's like <laughs> a class project, right? Here's the problem, class. Okay. See what you can do with this. And so it became inspirational to put your mind to making this idea come to life in reality. Like, where's the proof? You know, proof of concept. It must have been wild. I bet you're like, you know, you're waking up in the middle of the night, just, right? Just, yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah, your mind would race. You yeah. couldn't wait. You know, that's that was the collaboration. You couldn't wait to get back together the next day. Had all these ideas. Maybe you had some basic thing you recorded on a little four track, and now you were going to work on it. And it was just, <laughs> that's all you thought about. You know, it just became obsessive. And that's what we spent all our time on. And, of course, we were looked at as idiots. I mean, the prevailing culture was like, these, oh, yeah, these poor dummies. Oh, my God, they're sad. This won't last. What a bunch of nuts. No. You know, <laughs> For those of you who don't know Devo, just get on your computer and get a YouTube Devo some songs, and you'll see what we're talking about. But Yeah, because right, so can you imagine, you know, Jocko Homo was written in 1975. Right. You can imagine what people thought when they heard us playing Jocko Homo in 1975. <laughs> they just thought, oh, these people are nuts and they're losers, you know. And, and of course, the guy that was the manager of the local McDonald's, he's the one that got all the girls and all the dates. Right. You know? we, we couldn't even find a girlfriend. Because he's got the, you know, free, no. free double Macs or whatever. No. So are you guys playing gigs? Are you, re you recording or are you just... We're uh, pretty much in basements and garages and then once in a while what would happen is I would pretend to be the group's manager <laughs> and convince some little club owner that we were a cover band. Okay. So that and, and this was part of our, you know, pranks on people. We loved right. playing pranks. So we'd show up and of course we didn't cover any songs and I'd go, Okay, this is one by Bad Company and then we'd play Devos be stiff. And you just see the crowd like take stiff. them about a minute and realize that's not bad company. <laughs> and then they'd start screaming at us and get really pissed off. You know, we got paid two different occasions to quit playing. <laughs> like the bar owner said, Look, I'll give you 75 bucks, just quit now. Right? They and we thought that was a big victory. That's funny. Do you ever throw stuff at you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember there's some movie where there's a cowboy band and they're they're oh it was it's the Blues Brothers yeah. where they're they're playing the cowboy bar and yeah. there's a screen and people are throwing beer bottles out. Yeah, we had those experiences. Uh, we played a Halloween party in Cleveland, <laughs> Ohio, and the everybody was in costume, and it was for a radio station, and they they had taken all their guests and given them nitrous oxide. So you had, you know, girls are dressed like prostitutes, guys are dressed like Frankenstein right. or, or the devil, and now we're playing in front of them, and that takes them about five minutes, and they're throwing cans and bottles of beer at us, and the one guy just walks up on stage, grabs the microphone out of my hand, and pushes me down and and throws and throws the mic down and breaks it, and and our. You know, our sound man and our guitar guy that was helping us out tried to protect us, but we we had to go off stage and we had to go in the back yeah. in the dressing room, and then we had to go out the back door. They were and, gunning for you, but you know, we were in our costumes and stuff. Yeah. So we went to the car, we dressed in our street clothes, we came back as guests. They didn't recognize us because we had had clear plastic masks and work right. uniforms right. on, and um, yeah. We came back, and Sun Ra came on at midnight. <laughs> Sun Ra. We got to see Sun Ra. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 
Hey, and who? then and then in Liverpool, what you're talking about happened. Yeah. There was uh, literally a, a chicken wire chicken screen. Chicken wire, that's it. Between, you know, floor to ceiling, between the stage and and where the crowd stood. And we go, what's this? They go, <laughs> oh, you'll see, mate. You'll see. Like, <laughs> and what? Liverpool. Oh, my God. Just these guys just started spitting at us. That was part of the ritual. Gobbing, mm-hmm. they call it. Yeah. Spitting at us. Climbing this chicken wire fence, screaming like, like it looked like Island of Lost Souls, the movie. We were so glad for that barrier. <laughs> didn't these guys who book bands? Don't they ever, you know, get a tape and f- f- realize what they're getting into? Well, you know, if they're smart, they do. <laughs> 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 Things were very open and loose back then. You know, that's just nuts. things didn't have a roadmap back then yet. Hey, I just I just thought some. How did you guys come up with the costumes? Was that is that, that was me? Is that um, you? Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. We, uh, we we just hated what was going on in Stadium Rock and yeah. all these guys prancing around in um, like platform shoes sure. and, and spandex pants and look <laughs> at me, look at my big hair. And so we were just reacting to all that. And I said, well, we're going to do something very austere and kind of, you know, uh, industrial and foolproof. And I, I found those yellow suits in a janitorial <laughs> supply catalog. And... <laughs> I realized, well, if you put a cinch belt on them yeah. so that it was complementary to the body, right. and we put a logo on it, it won't look like uh, uniforms uh, that were designed, designed for, for people to spray dangerous chemicals. That's what, the, that's what they were. That's what they were, they were, they were hazmat suits, yeah. yeah. So, and we cut our hair short, and <laughs> people went nuts because they were laughing their asses off at us like we were fools. Right. Or they just thought it was so cool and futuristic and whacked, Right. They couldn't quit watching. Well, you hit, you know you you hit it. Yeah, you hit it. And then uh, what happened? The big break was was the Bowie the big break. I was Bowie saw Bo- you guys. Bowie, uh, what, how what what happened there? Bowie heard a tape. You know, okay. we had we had gone to see Iggy Pop on the Idiot tour, and Bowie was playing keyboards for him, and we saw him in Cleveland, Ohio, at Swingos, <laughs> <laughs> and we left a tape. Turns out Iggy listened to it and gave it to David, and we found this out months later. It was in a roundabout way, and we met David's attorney, Stan Diamond, out in L.A. when we went out there. Right, and he hooked us up. So you, so they called you up and said, and you gave you a contract. Well, he oh, wanted to produce us, okay. and he wanted us to sign to his label, Buley Brothers, which had a production deal with Warner Brothers, but then. You know, I had apprised myself of the music business by that point, and right. the deal was bad. Okay. I mean, we love David Bowie, but it was a bad deal. Okay. Well, good for you. Well, because they're going to give you, the record company's going to give him $500,000 an album. He's going to turn around and give us $200,000 an album, but he's going to recoup all the 500000 out of our sales, even though we only ever see two. Ooh. That's not a that's good not, deal. That's not a good deal. So I told Warner Brothers, no, we want a direct deal. You know, like, no, you know, you, that's your deal. And I go, well, we can't do it. Wow. So then David, he he's like, well, then I'm not going to produce the record. Here, have Brian Eno. He'll like him. He'll produce the record. And oh, Brian Eno really? agreed with Warner Brothers that he'd produce the record in the same German studio that David was going to use. Right where they had worked together on the album Low, and that, you know, he agreed to 
uh, not get paid until Warner Brothers gave us a deal. Because he, he assured Warner Brothers that if he produced the record, they're going to want it. So they agreed what he'd get paid up front if okay. they were going to pay him. And they agreed what they'd give us. So it was a right of first refusal. Like, if we like this record, here's what we'll give you. Okay. And it was a good deal. So we went to Germany and we recorded with Brian Eno and it all worked. Is he the one that wanted to change your style? I read somewhere somebody wanted well, you guys to change your music or something. Well, he was wanted that... to make it prettier. He he didn't <laughs> like the industrial edge it had. He thought it was too nasty. And he no, had it gotten was great. Well, at that point in his life, you know, he had gotten zenned out. He was no longer the guy that was in Roxy Music. He was doing a lot of that ambient, beautiful music, yeah. like music for airports and stuff. And he had developed these set of cards called Oblique Strategies that had all these like kind of Zen-like uh, sayings, almost, you know what I mean? Like right. almost haiku stuff, yeah. right? And he'd shuffle the deck and then give you a card. read it. And, yeah. Never okay, supposed to now, change right. your outlook And we thought, oh boy, this is corny. <laughs> this is corny. Because, I mean, God, we had we had worked on this stuff for years at that point, right? Yeah, because you've been, yeah, so at this point you're going, you're recording, but you've been together six, seven years? Well. Something like that? Yeah. Solidly four. Okay. Solidly four with the same lineup. That's a long and time. We had, we had like 50 songs that we were like culling from for album one, right? And we were committed to playing them a certain way. We couldn't think of playing them another way. Okay. So, and so Brian put a lot of tracks on our records and a lot of harmonies, and then when it came to the final mixes, Mark and I were pulling them down. <laughs> so, oh, uh, yeah. well, good. You you did well, my friend. Yeah. So, but I'm, I was looking at a bunch of stuff a couple of days ago. But you know, you guys did the you know that cover of Satisfaction, that cover of Working in the Coal Mine. Yeah. And I mean, that's just. I mean, but I'm looking at i'm listening to the music in my car and it's just like i'm like thinking these guys are really having fun yeah i mean yeah was it was it just fun yeah it was fun and that was part of it uh you know we were mutating things and we had a sense of humor oh. but we weren't trying to make comical music you know it was no. when people when you know when we redid satisfaction um jan wenner of rolling stone decided we were the devil. He hated us. He thought we were making fun oh. of the Rolling Stones, right? No. And we weren't at all. No. We were trying to use a classic song that we loved to show people what Devo meant. Like, here, this is how Devo would do Satisfaction, right? right. Yeah. So it's that your... was, again, proof of concept. Something that somebody could understand, maybe, because it wasn't original. It was, a, you know, a cover. But a whacked cover. <laughs> uh, but we had to play it for Mick Jagger to be allowed to put it on the record because the legal people considered what we'd done a parody. And back then, intellectual property was taken seriously. And if you it. do a parody, you had to get the permission of the writer. So, so we flew to New York, Mark and I. And, and played and it in front of played him? Played it. Live. Right there. You know, he played it on a boombox. And it was in uh, Peter Rudge's office, who's... Uh, <laughs> big evil manager of the Rolling Stones right. at the time, who ended up getting indicted for fraud and all kinds of other stuff. But he, <laughs> we're in this beautiful office in Midtown New York, fireplace going, <laughs> oversized brown leather club chairs. Jagger walks in. It's like one in the afternoon, and he was staying in some apartment con in the building. Right. And he came in. Just he didn't have any shoes on. He had uh, velour uh, flared <laughs> pants and a. And a velour turtleneck 
matching turtleneck. Right. And a glass of red wine. <laughs> and he's polite, and he yeah. na- and he's, he sits down and goes, all right, let's hear it then. <laughs> yeah. And we put it on the boom box, and we're thinking, oh, man. Yeah, this is, good. This ain't gonna, this is not going to go shaking well. shaking in our boots. You know, we feel like Wayne's World, like we're yeah. not worthy. Yeah. And he starts swirling the wine, and he sits it down on this Afghan rug next to the chair, and he gets up, and he's in his stocking feet, and there's hardwood floors. Right. He starts dancing like Mick Jagger in front of the fireplace to the song. To the song. You got to be kidding <laughs> it me. It was like, whoa, man. <laughs> he did that. He goes, I like it. I like it. <laughs> and of course, we were just elated. And oh, yeah. We flew back to LA that following Monday and went straight to our manager's office. We had just signed with Elliot Roberts. He was uh, Neil Young's manager and. If he was good enough for Neil Young, he was good enough for us. Well, so. no kidding. And you did something with Neil Young, didn't you guys? Yeah, we, you did, we, you did the we movie. worked on his movie with him, Human Highway. Which is that's a, how we met Elliot. Cult classic. Yeah, and uh, we go, Elliot, you wouldn't believe it. He liked it so much. He goes, Yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, Listen, before you even got there, I called Peter Rudge and I told him to tell Mick to act like he liked it because you guys are going to make him a lot of money on that cover. Oh, no, oh, no. Is that a heartbreaker? Oh, yeah, because, you know, this is, you're getting a fast education. You're moving from innocence to experience in Hollywood really fast. Really fast. And uh, and, and, and because we had to, we we didn't retain any of the publishing because that was part of the deal. Like, oh, I'll let you cover this, but it's our song. So, yeah. yeah. And, you know. And but, it went you know, from there. But but it worked up. But it benefited you guys because I mean, of just it did. with that, of course. I mean, because yeah. of that that you know connection with oh, the all these experiences all were life changing. Yeah, Saturday Night Live was just a life. When were you guys on that? Once or twice. Well, that was October. Mm-hmm. I think it was October eighteenth, nineteen seventy eight. We go on Saturday Night Live. Boom, and that'll just, do it. We went from playing three hundred seat clubs to two and three thousand seaters because because of, of that, that show. TV show. Wow, you know. Something like twelve million people saw us that yeah. night, and we were we played well, <laughs> yeah, because we had been playing so often and so much that we were tight. When you guys were, so you're touring a lot, you're playing a lot. I right. mean, I've always been curious because I've never met personally someone like you who's done this and did that. I mean, that lifestyle. You're on the road all the time. Is there is there a home? Is there any type of you know? I'm going to use the term normal. Well, normal is what no. I mean, normal is what you're normal. No, there isn't a home. I mean, yeah, you're back in town. But I have to say, see, I loved it. Yeah, I loved it because growing up, I didn't have a good association with my home. It was oppressive, right? Okay. And I would never got to travel. I didn't see the world at all. You know, I saw Cleveland and Akron basically. Well, maybe Detroit. I drove to Detroit. Detroit. Uh, to the Blues Festival. That was about it. So for me, every city was exciting, you know, and everything was an experience. And I loved hotel rooms personally. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm, I spent a lot of time there too. I do too. <laughs> and especially when we started making money and the hotels got nicer. Got nicer. And nicer. Um, so, but, and so if you're going into, you're on tour, you're doing a show, but you still have maybe a, one or two days in that town right. a lot of times. So you that's can right. Explore. And that's how. That's how the fascination with wine yeah, really gonna, kicked off. I wondered because, if that's uh, how it kicked in. Okay. Well, uh, again, yeah. we go to California. These guys are turning me on. I'm tasting, you know, I had your, your experience with cheese where you go, 
or fish, you said. Yeah. I don't eat fish, right? right? I was like, I don't like wine, yeah. and they laughed at me, right? <laughs> yeah. And I said, here, try this. And I remember, here, Michael McCarty at Michael's Restaurant, here, eat my uh, spaghettini with salmon roe and drink this Kistler Chardonnay, right? And it's like, I get it. <laughs> and so when we were on the road, promoters were oftentimes, even if they were unscrupulous, they tended to be educated people, and because they had money, they got to do cool things. So I remember our first trip to Europe, where we toured okay. Europe. The Italian promoter said, hey, Devo, I'm going out to <laughs> Castello di Amma. You want to come? You know, And it's like everybody else is like, no, we're going to shop in town. And I go, I want to come. And which seeing, is a gorgeous property. Oh, my God. oh it's gorgeous. And in the hills. seeing this lifestyle, right? Yeah. And the guy had a chef there. Yeah. And we go into the caves with the, he's bringing stuff out. And I just was Sampling so envious barrels. of this. Yeah. Like, okay. this is the life. My God. And you're only like 45 minutes out of Florence, right? Right. So it's town and country. It's incredible. And the, and the food and the wine was mind blowing. I still remember having some weird, like, some raviolis with ewe's milk and black yeah. truffles that was like just, baked in the oven and just boom right there yeah. nothing fancy boom and a really good glass of red wine oh yeah just so good you and you know what use. they were making pinot noir then it's castello di ama they called it pinot nero and it was the first time i in the ever, heart in the heart of tuscany yeah wow yeah because this is when the italian winemakers Broke with tradition, you know. They right. didn't care if they got the rooster on the bottle yeah. anymore. Yeah. And so they were making the super Tuscans. The super Tuscans. But these guys, in addition to that, were making, making Pinot Nero. And I think they were one of the only ones doing it. Oh. It was quite good. It was very French style. And I got addicted to the French. I mean, that's what happened. I, as a kid, well, kid, as a 30-year-old, <laughs> I start, you know, getting turned on to wine. And, of course, in California, it's all these massive Cabernets. Right. Everybody's, like, losing it over these big Cabernets, the over-oaked malolactic Chardonnays sure. that are, like, milkshakes. And, of course, when you're, you know, when you're new, that stuff all tastes amazing because mm -hmm. it's uh, this flavor overload. Right. Crazy. You can't, right? you can't miss it. No. Boom, it's right there. But then as we traveled and I drank, you know, Barolos and Barbarescos and... So my Antonori's Super Tuscans, and then we get to France, and I'm tasting really good Bordeaux for the first time, and then what happened? This so, French okay. guy <laughs> takes us to La Coupole after a show, and he orders some Burgundy, and it was uh, God, who was it? It was it was, it was Chambon Musigny, but I remember just suddenly like I couldn't stop thinking about this flavor. Like, okay. you know, I'd go back to my cabs and these right. big hit-you-in-the-face wines, and I kept thinking about that. That wine. And then I started educating myself about Pinot Noir grapes. Okay. <laughs> and the older I got, the more I just, I was a junkie for Pinot. That was it. And I thought, if I ever get to make wine, that's the first wine I'm going to make because that's the one I'm passionate about that I want to make that varietal. Right. You know. And so when I got the opportunity here because of my partnership with this restoration architect mm -hmm. who's still trying to build the Mies van der Rohe 50 by 50 house that he designed in 1950, that we're still trying to make that our tasting room. Uh, and, but he, my, my partner owned 25 acres up Monticello Road in Napa. 
And I, I knew, you know, before I even, even started thinking about growing or sourcing grapes that I wasn't interested in Pinot Noir from Napa. Right, right. So I spent a year trying to find a source for Pinot Noir in Sonoma. Sure. Uh, hopefully Russian River, but that right. was too expensive. But I found in Sonoma Coast, I found what I wanted, which because I wanted six, six, seven clones mm-hmm. and Pomard clones. That was what I decided is the blend I liked the best. And uh, I found the source and started becoming a fledgling winemaker, released my first vineyard. I released it 2012 and 2014. Okay. Uh, and people liked it. I mean, you know, is uh, the people I could get it to. And sure. I had it in a dozen restaurants in L.A. I had it in wine shops like K&L up here in San Francisco and down in L.A. And uh, got it into Wally's. Great. Mr. Navarro liked it. And, uh, you know, I made a very, very on-purpose French-style, austere, you know, Fruit suppressed well, Pinot Noir, right? And you, and you, brought, and you brought me a bottle. I by did. the way, the label the the label is fifty by fifty. Right, is the name of the brand, right. and I I love that style myself. So I'm looking forward to trying. Yeah, this. Hoping, and so is my wife. It so matches with that. food. See, that's yeah. I, I well, that that's where and that's where your whole that's how it started. Wine education came from. That's right. It came from those experiences. Oh, the the pairings are the best. Oh, thanks for this, man. Because it makes the wine and the food another level. I never just drink wine to drink wine. I mean, maybe rosé. I do like good dry rosé, and I make rosé. And I, for rosé, the 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 grapes I have from Sonoma uh, are are too big, too hardy. Right. So I found a source, Ranky Vineyards in Carneros, and I just use six six seven, and I just make the rosé on purpose. We pick. For rosé, we're picking oh, cool. at Rick's level. You know, it's not some afterthought or yeah. runoff. It's we're making the rosé. You so you're, ma- you're making the, the rosé and the pinot. And now and I'm you, trying to make a white pinot. Wow! I'll tell you what happened. Wait I, a minute! You can't make a white pinot because that's going to be rosé. How are you going to nope. do that? No. Nope. Okay. All right. What's I'll the tell secret? you who. <laughs> I'll tell you who. It. It was. What's his name? Tony Reidner. Okay. Tony Reidner is a winemaker that worked for Domaine Serene for years. So he started making white Pinot Noir called The Pretender. <laughs> and I talked to him in Portland at this incredible wine bar where they had The Pretender. And I didn't know what it was. I was given blind. Right. And I'm trying to guess that it's some high-end Alberino, Alberino Alberino, or something. yeah. Or maybe a, I thought maybe it's a, Pinot Bianco from yeah. Venezia or something, you know. Pinot, Pinot, Pinot Gris, yeah, something like that. Yeah. They go, no, look, white Pinot. How's he get? How's he do without getting any color? Well. If you can't tell me, it's all right. You don't no. have to. I mean, <laughs> no, he would only give me hints. He goes, good luck. Oh, he, he gave me a lot of pointers, yeah. He gave me a lot of pointers. And you know what? There are white Pinots that do have a hint of pink. Sure. Them. But they don't have any flavor of rosé. This this was bone dry, but with a beautiful silken finish on the tongue because it's Pinot Noir grapes, and I I loved it because it was such a great alternative to Chard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I just thought, well, everybody in the world's making Chardonnay. I, I can't bring myself to do it. You know, I, I wouldn't even want to compete. But I yeah, want to make crowded. a good white Pinot, and so we experimented last year, and it was pink. 
Okay. I didn't release it. Okay. Oh, okay. But um, this year it's looking promising. It's uh, all right. We picked a little riper. We did a whole cluster press right away. Uh, there's maybe the slightest tinge of pinkness, but it actually it's in the barrel in in um, mm-hmm. you know French marquee oak. Got and, it. And but blonde blonde oak. Got it. And it's tasting promising. All right. All so right. I think if, I'm, if if you bottle that puppy, I want. I oh want, yeah. I want a phone call. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm looking I'm, forward I'm, to I'm it. I'm buying. Well, because you know I'm just this fledgling little. I produce a. Four to five hundred cases. That's what I'm doing. You know? No, it's great. I mean, and you've been doing it four or five years now. Yeah, and it's called Fifty by Fifty. Fifty by Fifty. And you've got a spot in the Wooden Valley. You've got a vineyard there, Wooden Valley, which is yeah southeast southeast Napa Valley. Yeah, it's up up Monticello Road, okay. um, uh, thirty five seventy six. <laughs> okay, and uh, that's where we're still trying to get that house finished and open to the public. You know, the barn's finished. Barn, well, and tell, of us, we, well, tell know, us about this house cause, and this architect. This is a good story. Well, Mies van der Rohe, yeah. the preeminent you know, architect from Europe that came from the Bajas school with Walter Gropius. And uh, he came to Chicago from uh, Vienna. And, okay. and he single-handedly you know, created that international style that we all know, that we all start to call mid-century modern now, um, of... Clean rectilinear lines, steel and glass, you know, uh, function determining the form, mm-hmm. uh, materials that last that are durable, like, you know, polished concrete, um, wood veneers, um, stainless steel. Uh, and he designed a house that was 50 feet by 50 feet <laughs> uh, with panels of glass walls. The, 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 they're, each side is 50 feet, two panels of glass, 25 feet long, 10 feet high, with a center post in, you know, on each side that's the load-bearing post right. that they lock into. They come together at a right angle with a mullion at the end, mm-hmm. beveled 45-degree angles. And uh, it's on a concrete pad. And then the core, the rooms, you walk around basically... The core of the you house. You walk around the core. So each room, the divider comes out to about three feet within the uh, to the wall. Through, through the glass wall. Yeah, so you have a constant flow corridor, and then the rooms, you know, you're in a partitioned-off room. And there's, so there's the eating area, the dining area, the two bedrooms, bathroom, and an open kitchen, stainless steel counters. Very cool. So when you get that completed, that's going to be your that's home? That's where you'd or come. Would that be the, the kind of the winery? If yeah. you visit the winery, that's, that's right. where you got it. That's where you'd come and sit and drink the 50 by 50 wines. Cool. And uh, and maybe someday I will attempt <laughs> to throw my hat in the ring with uh, Bordeaux-style Cabernet. Well, you have to because have to. because you're an artist. That, we I all know. are. You know, it's, um, I know, and I already have the logo. And it, you know, it wouldn't be called the fifty by fifty, except small. Let's say another fine offering by the fifty by fifty, but it would be called Parliament. Okay. I've I've registered the name, and it's a, a beautiful woodcut of an owl from huh. German expressionist uh, artist from the thirties. Okay. Well, you so we need you need to do that. I yeah, want to see that Parliament. One. So, um, where are you making your wines now? Is there you custom crushing? Right over uh, uh, at a barn. 
near Judd's Hill. Okay. Uh, Eric Lyman. That's right. You you know, all her. equipment's there. I work with him. Great. We truck the stuff at night from Sonoma over. over you know, it's a single vineyard in Sonoma. Nice. And we truck it at, at night. I was. I, I still. <laughs> it was funny the last harvest walking. You know the. They're hand picking it, but they have the the big tractors with the HTL, H, HTML lights, sure, like day for night. Yeah, oh, it's fantastic. I know, <laughs> it's so cool. Oh, it was great. Emmy and um, we're talking about picking grapes at night, which is now everyone. That's all anyone does. You, you kind of have to. You can. It's it's the way to do it, yeah. and the benefits are just yeah. um, endless. But yeah. In the old days, we'd start at sunup, and these guys would be picking right. until 2 or 3 in the afternoon. The fruit gets to be 90 right. degrees, and it's brutal on the guys from gals picking. Yeah. I mean, it's tough. And it's brutal on the wine itself. A lot can happen the right wine. there. I mean, you're picking because all the numbers are right, and you're tasting the grapes right oh. off. The, and you're, you don't want that experience of that day of picking to take it over the top. No. And, and it can. It can, really. Especially quickly. now. That everything's much hotter than it used to be. Well, we had hot years back in the '80s too. But you, you know, where it really helps us out is, is production because we show up at uh, crew. Some of the guys show up at five thirty, six in the morning. We've already got grapes. Yeah, we can start processing. Yes. In the old days, we wouldn't get grapes till noon. Right. So we'd be here. Thank right. God we were young because you know we were getting no <laughs> sleep at all. Because we'd be here till eleven o'clock, yeah. twelve o'clock at night. Yeah, now I we, felt beat up. I'm a senior citizen now, and I, you know. Ha. It's not. It's not like it used to be. When you're 72, things change. <laughs> well, you don't look 72, my friend. Well. So, kind of, kind of curious, just because I'm because I'm must be the wine because I'm a fan. <laughs> it is the wine. Are you guys? Do you, are you still playing music? Is, is well, Devo, you know, is Devo retired? That's a sore point. Uh, oh, okay. I mean, we could be playing music. We because we are now quote a legacy act. Okay. Uh, and because we're we're so known for our live shows, right? We right. could offer. So much more money now than we ever got offered. Oh because, my gosh! Really? You know, it's like this is it. It's now or never, right? It's like, oh, who's left from the '80s that was a real band that can really deliver? Oh, Devo. And Mark Mothersbaugh says, no, 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 no. Anyway, but, well, so it's you, sad because I, I love playing. I love performing. I'm with you. Can Every you, time is, we play, any other ways like you, it. can you perf- any other ways you can perform perform solo or local sure, local sure. stuff? Sure, I'll do that just because I love performing. Yeah. Uh, but there's really no money in it. Yeah. Does Does Mark like Cabernet? Maybe I should go visit him. I'll take a little cab. <laughs> Mark has no interest in wine. It's very funny. Well, he's he never, you know, he, he yeah he, he he wasn't a druggie. He wasn't a wine drinker. Maybe he'd have an occasional martini. Yeah. <laughs> How'd you guys dodge all those those years? Because the years you were hot, that was just where the the whole drug scene on the on the the, the rock scene and drugs and yeah challenging. Well, you know, I've always been a connoisseur and a person that prides myself on not losing it. Like, I don't overdrink. Mm-hmm. I didn't overindulge. I, I, yeah. Yeah, I did cocaine like everybody. Yeah. But, you know, was, I knew, the 80s. I knew uh, two lines good, four lines bad. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it, it was like you're saying, it was treated as if, like, at five o'clock, somebody goes, hey, Jerry, do you want a cocktail? That's how cocaine was treated yeah. in the music business. Every A&R man at the record company had it. Every promoter had it. Every manager had sure. it. And they'd go, yours is shit. Try mine. And so it was like this. <laughs> who's you know, got the, who's everybody got the was convinced stuff? it wasn't addictive. It wasn't dangerous. They were yeah. convinced of it. It was cutesy, like vitamin C. Right. Right. 
And uh, luckily, I escaped unscathed. I Good. wouldn't, if I even smell it now, it turns my stomach. Yeah. But yeah, there was a time where it just seemed like... It's like having a beer. It was. Kind of. It really was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. And I, and I hated needles, so I never went there. I had no interest in, quote, going downtown. <laughs> I like I liked getting pumped up. You well, know? I think that I, yeah, I think well, the wine thing's unnatural. And you know, the other thing is, I was going to ask you about. You're not the only musician doing wine. Sting, That's right. M- Pat Monaghan, Train, Les Claypool. Yeah. What do you, you think? There was a connection with music and wine, or is it just? I do uh, think there's a connection with music and wine. You know, and it's a double-edged sword because, unfortunately, a lot of artists, a lot of uh, recording artists put their names on shit product that somebody else makes. It's just they're dialing it in there. They had nothing to do with it. Right. And and it just gives it gives you a bad name. People look at you askance like, oh, yeah, another uh, celebrity trying to make wine. And so you have to really prove yourself. Right. But with the people you named, and like Maynard from Tool, mm-hmm. they're serious. They're yeah. totally hands-on. They're really doing it. They're really there. And I've I've tasted their wines. Um, I don't like any of them. <laughs> it's just my personal taste. I mean, there's there's people that do like them, but they're very they're very muscular in your face. This is this is hey, hey art, music, wine. You and I, let's go to an art museum and see what see how many times we agree on a piece of work. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it'll be ten yeah, percent maybe. Very subjective. Yeah, and that's you're not right. I'm not right. right. And you're not wrong. No one's right. No right. one's wrong. Right. That's what's so it's fun, right. right? You know, and and you know, with wine, my tastes are changing all the time. But to me, that's fun yeah. because if I just drink Cabernet all the time, yeah, it's boring. I couldn't do that. I I would get beat up. I think you I'd know. gain a lot of weight too. <laughs> Greek, some of the white wines from Greece. I'm just doing that. I'm I'm kind really? of I'm kind of banging through those right now. Oh, they're slate and lean and I'd have steely, to try that. steely. I've never just, had a. A Greek wine that was any good. No, uh, I can help you out on that. One. I'm I'm a big fan of Sicilian whites. Okay, yeah, similar maybe a little yeah. bit. Okay, I really love the 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 volcanic nature, yeah. like from the ones around Etna. Really okay. good. And so, there's one they make. It's like it's like Pinot Grigio. They Grillo. Grillo. G R I L O L L O. Grillo. It's so good. Good. All right. <laughs> and it, it's got that quality you're that's talking about. Steely slate. Yeah. That's I love that stuff. Yeah. Oh. And Chablis. But Boy, we won't. We won't we're not gonna, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, sure. That's just like you know. Yeah. You know, if, if I ever could have an expensive, you know, rock or rock band, I could make a lot yeah. of money. I could go buy land in Chablis. <laughs> you know, all all wine that's good is good, whether somebody likes it or not, in the sense that it's made well. It doesn't have flaws. You know. Mm-hmm. It's like. That's the first thing, you know. That's yeah, uh, yeah. Can't have flaws. It's like with music; you got to be in tune, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Never thought about that. Unless you're out of tune on purpose, <laughs> which, yeah, which Jimi Hendrix would. Jimi do. Hendrix do. <laughs> so Gerald, for fifty by fifty, yeah. where do where do people find your wine? What's the what's the play? How, is there a website they can hit? And oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you could. That's yeah, cool. you can order it direct. Okay. Sure. It's the 50by50.com, 50 50 all, all letters, right. the 50by50.com, okay. because some German internet parker had 50 by 50 numbers. The numbers. And he wanted thousands of dollars to let me use it for a website. You know, that's the game they play. 
But did, just, you know, didn't you tell me you were Devo? Yeah, that, <laughs> that made the price go up. Oh, he no, assumed I was rich. There you go. Um, he didn't know Mark Mothersbaugh won't let us make money. <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, the 50by50.com, all letters, and it's all there. Super. I'm about to re- release the 19 Rosé okay. in about two weeks. Great. Yeah. It's the right time of year. Yeah. Springtime is here. All right, Gerald. Thanks so much for taking the time. This is well, a thank real you, treat. Man. Really cool. I mean, you're you're it. You're the master. <laughs> oh here. man, I'm just I'm just growing grapes and making wine, just <laughs> yeah. like everybody else. Yeah, thirty thousand cases or something. Like yeah, that. <laughs> every year, every year. Nice. It's like a nice. job. All right, man. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. It's not often we have a guest on the podcast who I've never met. Usually, we've bumped into each other at a wine event or two. So I had no idea what to expect, but I had a great time talking with Gerald today and hearing his story. I kind of feel like we just skimmed the surface of all the stuff he can talk about. Music, architecture, travel, wine, and on and on. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Be sure to visit his website, the50by50.com. We'll post it on our website along with this podcast so you can easily find it. Thanks very much for listening to another episode of our podcast. If you enjoy it and would like to help other people find us, please rate and review The Taste on iTunes. Also, if you have any thoughts about what we're doing or about our guests, please send us an email at podcast at We'll see you next time.